0: Bienvenue and welcome back to the land of desire. I'm your host, Diana, and this week's episode is coming to you from Paris. By the time you hear this, we'll have just arrived. My mother, longtime fan of the show, has never been to Paris before, so I'm really excited to show her all the places she's come to know through previous episodes. Among other landmarks, of course, we'll be stopping by Notre Dame, getting as close as the city will let us get to pay our respects. Though a terrible fire may have ripped through the cathedral last month, Notre Dame is still standing. And as with any medieval cathedral, Notre Dame is really a series of cathedrals, different versions stacked up on top of and rubbing up next to other versions of itself, a palimpsest of history. As we're about to learn today, There is no such thing as the original Notre Dame, and those visionaries behind her construction knew that that would always be the case. Right from the start, natural disaster, political distractions, and competing artistic visions meant that Notre Dame was always in a constant flux. The first disaster to strike the cathedral? yeah. It was a massive fire sweeping through the carpentry in her attic before the cathedral was even finished. But it was just part of the process, the eternal life of a cathedral, and it wasn't long until progress continued. Last week, we learned about King Louis VII, failed crusader, ex husband of Eleanor of Aquitaine heirless king of the Franks, at a time when Paris was nothing more than a crowded, cramped trading post in a backwater territory. After praying hard for a son, Louis VII sought to get back into God's good graces by building Paris the vast Gothic cathedral she deserved. The offering worked, and within two years of the first cornerstone being set at Notre-Dame de Paris, Louis's only son and heir, Philippe Auguste, arrived. Philippe Auguste would do more than any man before him to transform Paris entirely. As Notre Dame made her way into the world, so did Paris, growing into a major center of commerce, religion, and art, and the beating heart of a new nation. If the first pre-modern age of Paris was one of swampy, territorial squabbles, The age of Philippe Auguste was one of medieval splendor and power. Philippe Auguste would transform the physical landscape of the city, and by the time his grandson Louis IX took over, Paris would be the center of Europe. And at the center of that center? A gothic jewel stretching from the rapidly changing streets of Paris towards heaven signaling the arrival of a new, modern city, full of wealth and God's favor, Notre-Dame de Paris. When the aging Philippe Auguste reached the end of his long and glorious reign, he spent his days in the Palais de la Cité, the royal palace of the 12th century. Back then, the royal palace sprawled across the center of the Ile de la Cité. If the king looked out the window in one direction, he could see his father's cathedral, Notre-Dame, being constructed, with multiple teams of masons building up different corners of the cathedral at once. If he looked out another window, Philippe could see the Louvre, the old guard tower which Philippe had demolished in order to replace with a fortress, guarding the Seine against the English. If Philippe looked out another window, he could see off in the distance the massive roofs of Léal, the enormous marketplace he had constructed to feed the great belly of Paris. Out yet another window, Philippe could see the roofs of the University of Paris, sheltering anxious students and hungry, underpaid professors. Surrounding all of this, of course, Philippe could see the slithering path of his great wall, encircling the city and protecting it from outsiders. If he stood at the end of one window and squinted, depending on the quality of the air and how poorly his vision was doing at the time, Philippe might be able to make out the road to Saint-Denis, the great Gothic cathedral which his father Louis Seventh had helped open and in which he was now buried and in which Philippe too would one day join him. Looking out over the vast, sprawling landscape, there was only one thing which King Philippe Auguste could not see, an end. Over the last remarkable 43 years of his reign, Philippe inherited the Frankish lands of his father, took back the lands his father had lost to his ex-wife and her new husband, picked up new territory in the north, picked up even more new territory in the south, and consolidated all of these lands into a single, unified political entity more powerful than any other in Western Europe, a place called France. And at the heart of this country, Paris, Philippe Auguste's beloved home, his pet project, and his personal legacy. No other king had ever done so much for the city, loved it so well, or given it so much attention. Philippe's love affair with Paris lasted through foreign wars, a crusade in the Middle East, and fights against enemies, popes, and wives. And it all began years earlier, when Philippe was only twenty years old, only a few years into his reign, as he stood in this very same royal palace and stuck his head out one of the windows. In 1185, Philippe was a young man, fresh on the job. Having inherited the throne from King Louis VII when he was just 15, Philippe nevertheless inspired confidence in those who saw him. When Louis had taken the throne, he had been a small, quiet, pious man, reeling from the loss of his brother and the career in the church that he had wanted so much. Philippe, on the other hand, was completely different. Contemporaries described him as a handsome, strapping fellow, bald but with a cheerful complexion, and a temperament much inclined towards good living, wine, and women. He was generous to his friends, stingy towards those who displeased him, "'Well-versed in the art of stratagem, orthodox in belief, prudent and stubborn in his resolves, "'he made judgments with great speed and exactitude.'" Well, young King Philippe is about to make one of those quick judgments now. Sticking his head out the window, 20-year-old Philippe was assaulted by the smells of the street below. Thanks to the fate of Philippe Auguste's namesake, his father's dead brother, there were no longer any wild pigs roaming the streets of the Ile de la Cité, but otherwise, the scene was unchanged. Except, if you can believe it, everything was even more crowded. As the great historian Alistair Horne points out, in a medieval Europe accustomed to evil-smelling streets, Paris had prize-winning qualities that were to endure through the ages. He notes the sheer number of street names reflecting the horrors within. Rue Merderelle, Rue Pet, Rue aux aucheur aka Crappy Street, Big Fart Avenue, Dog Pit Lane, and so on. To call these little alleys streets was pushing it. In the 12th century, most streets were just dirt paths in which the droppings of horses, stray animals, and people made for a particularly revolting mud. Every disgusting byproduct from the butchers and the tanners and the candle makers was poured into the streets and mixed into that mud. And yes, every once in a while, one of those forbidden pigs would creep back onto the island to root around and scare the bejesus out of the royal princes. And when it rained, heaven help you when it rained. Earlier Frankish kings didn't always spend too much time in Paris, and who can blame them? But Philippe Auguste couldn't ignore the nightmare going on under his very own window. And right away, he delivered one of his firm judgments. Paris, we're going to pave your streets, and we're going to start with my streets, and we're going to start now. Within his lifetime, Philippe saw the biggest streets in Paris paved with cobblestones, making transportation faster and less deadly to the senses. It was the first of many, many practical city planning projects Philippe would execute over the course of his long reign. In Philippe, Paris finally found an advocate. If the city of Paris found an advocate in Philippe-Auguste, individual residents felt differently. Specifically, Jewish Parisians, who would end up funding the king's vast civic improvements, whether they wanted to or not. Even in the context of medieval Europe, Philippe-Auguste was awful to the Jewish communities in Paris which had established themselves in the Ile de la Cité centuries ago Philippe's father Louis the left the Jews on his doorstep more or less alone and at the time of his death the Jewish community owned approximately half of the private property in Paris put another way a lot of Parisians were in debt to the Jewish community Philippe Auguste realized that seizing property from Jewish people and then kicking them out of the country entirely was a great way to fund his civic projects and get a ton of anti-Semitic Parisians on his side by freeing them from their debts. By the end of his massive sweeps, Philippe had collected the equivalent of a year and a half of government revenue from Jewish pockets. Philippe put that stolen money to work, funding most of the big medieval projects which still survive in Paris today. As always, when you look up at a great historical monument, ask yourself, who built this? Who paid for it? And that brings us back to the construction site of Notre Dame. I've heard a number of people muttering in recent weeks about the building process, that the men who built Notre Dame were underpaid injured and killed to make Notre Dame Cathedral. I understand, I know that in the 21st century this feels like a really strong position to take, but I cannot emphasize this enough. It was the 12th century, literally every possible vocation was underpaid and dangerous. We are talking about a time when the heir to the throne was killed by a poop covered pig. Life was hard and brutish and short, and working on the cathedral had much more to recommend it than other occupations at the time, not least of which was a promise of grace to a lot of people who genuinely believed in the holiness of their work. Although money plundered from Jewish moneylenders by the king contributed a lot of the funding for Notre Dame, by no means did it contribute all of it. Great Gothic cathedrals were often funded by small donations from individuals and local groups looking for good PR. As one contemporary put it, the Cathedral of Paris was largely built with the farthings of old women. Trade guilds would often band together to raise money amongst themselves, both to ensure blessings from God and get an advertisement on the wall of the hottest building in town. Everybody wanted in on the action, and I do mean everybody. Apparently, the Prostitutes Guild offered to pay for a window. The church officials were glad to take the money, but that was it. It's a shame, really. I would really like to see that stained glass. By the time Philippe Auguste ascended to the throne in 1180, the cathedral in progress was spreading its footprint across the Ile-de-France, First, Bishop Sully created an entirely new street, Rue Neuve-Notre-Dame, to accommodate the enormous loads of material being dragged into the middle of the crowded medieval maze. To start, there was all that rock, the precious Parisian limestone which makes up Notre-Dame, the Louvre, and all the grand pale Hausmann buildings which would one day line Paris' massive streets. All that limestone had to be dug up from quarries. We last discussed those quarries in episode 21, The Road to Hell. You may remember, the limestone quarries underneath the city streets began collapsing in the 1700s, most memorably when a giant sinkhole sucked a few Parisians below the unfortunately but appropriately named Rue d'Enfer, or Road to Hell. The very same excavation process which would one day send so many Parisians down into hell was the same process which would raise up the world's most famous temple to heaven. The men digging limestone out of the earth were usually the lowest skilled and lowest paid workers, though it is worth noting they were paid. Once the limestone was dragged up from below, it was loaded onto boats and floated down the Seine, so famous for its ability to carry heavily laden vessels. Eventually, the rock rolled off the Seine and down the Rue Neuve-Notre-Dame, where it was redistributed to whichever part of the cathedral was going up at the time. There, the limestone would be hauled onto wheels or cranes resting on the ground. Then, the masons would go up, 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 with the stone and a lot of mortar to glue everything in place. Most importantly, however, the stonemasons added that wondrous new innovation, the flying buttress. Though perhaps the most famous architectural feature of Notre Dame, we don't actually know whether flying buttresses were part of the original design. Timelines get muddy in the 12th century And flying buttresses were so innovative, and so avant-garde, that it's actually hard to know whether the buttresses were intended from the start, or whether one of the early master architects saw an example of flying buttresses, lost his mind, and rethought the whole cathedral. Those lovely swooping stone wings coming out of the side of Notre Dame don't just give a grand dramatic effect, They transfer the weight of those heavy stone walls, so that instead of squishing on one another, kind of like being the unluckiest cheerleader at the bottom of a human pyramid, instead that weight gets transferred into the ground. All of a sudden, to the medieval imagination, the sky's the limit's. Flying buttresses allowed the walls to climb so high that Notre-Dame de Paris remained the tallest building in Paris until the Eiffel Tower was built half a millennium later. So much more space for windows and all that heavenly light to come in. When Philippe took the throne, the walls of the Choir of Notre-Dame were just about finished and the first official masses were taking place in the new cathedral. Work was about to begin on the transept and the nave of the church. If you're like me, and you have no idea what that just meant, remember that from above, a cathedral looked like a giant cross. The transept is the part that looks like arms, the short little segment that intersects the long segment and sticks out with stubby little arms on both sides. The nave is the main part of the cathedral. It's the spot where most people sit down. By the time Philippe became king, the general floor plan of Notre Dame was finished, and the walls were raised high And it was time for the masons of Paris to step back and make way for the next group of master builders, the carpenters. As one enthusiastic historian of oak trees, bless his heart, explains the roof of any building in the European Middle Ages was a carpenter's test and the place he could best show his imaginative understanding of invisible forces. Composed of rafters, collars, purlins, and tiles, the roof was usually the heaviest part of the building not pegged directly to the ground. It exerted the strongest forces, both straight down and outward, and it was always the part most exposed to wind and storm. As buildings grew in size, the knowledge necessary to keep them standing became more crucial and more difficult. In other words, When a building is wider than the height of a single tree, how do you knit wood? And it gets harder. You can't leave the wooden rafters exposed to rain and lightning. Bishop Sully left money in his will for lead tiles that would line the roof. Lead was considered the perfect roof material if you could afford it, because lead didn't erode very quickly in the rain and it didn't burn. The problem was, lead is heavy. By the time the cathedral was finished, Bishop Sully's lead roof tiles would weigh half a million pounds. How could you possibly support such a structure? Well, you start with a lot of trees. This would require not only carpenters, but farmers and 12th century lumberjacks. As it turns out, Europeans in the 12th century felt squeezed in. Sure, the city centers were cramped and full of thousands of people, pushcarts, and pigs, but most Europeans still lived off the land, and according to them, the land was running out. Between the years 1000 and 1300, which is roughly the span of time between when Anna of Kiev arrived in France and the completion of Notre Dame, the population of Europe doubled. French soil needed to support more French people, and medieval mindsets held that forests were a waste of good land. As one 14th century poet wrote, Day by day they kept forcing the woodland to creep further up the hillside, surrendering the lower reaches to tillage. Forests weren't seen as beautiful refuges of nature, They were scary places full of wild animals, and God had commanded man to tame the wilderness. Modern scientists estimate that in the year 500, approximately 50% of the useful soil in France was covered by forest. By the time Anna of Kiev arrived, only 39% of the useful soil had forest. And by the time Notre Dame was finished, 16% of the arable soil in France was still covered by forests. Most of those trees ended up in Notre Dame herself. As soon as construction began, the order went out to the woodlands. Trees, as many as you can, as quickly as you can. Within ten years, France had felled over 13,000 enormous oak trees, each one about 300 to 400 years old, just for the cathedral. Each beam in the cathedral's roof was carved from a single individual tree, and it didn't take long for the vast entanglement to earn a fitting nickname, the forest. But the people of medieval France were right about one thing. The forest was dangerous, which is to say those wooden cathedral attics caught fire all the time. The cathedrals of Orleans and Vézalais had already burned spectacularly, but those were nothing compared to the Cathedral of Mainz in Germany, when the candles for the dedication ceremony burned the cathedral to the ground on its opening day. So it was with a resigned sigh, I can only assume, that the masons and carpenters came to work one morning around the year 1200 and found that the magnificent forest of Notre-Dame Cathedral caught fire. With a what-can-you-do kind of attitude, they went right to work salvaging as many rafters as they could, signaling to the countryside that they're actually going to need even more of those big oak trees. Within Philippe's lifetime, the forest of Notre-Dame was entirely rebuilt and the first crisis of her long lifespan had passed. Over the course of 40 years, Notre-Dame had risen amidst a Paris undergoing dramatic changes visible in every direction. The Paris whose smells had so assaulted a young King Philippe was unrecognizable replaced by a city twice as big, surrounded by an enormous wall filled with marketplaces, a university, courts, palaces, fortresses, and, at last, a magnificent cathedral. When Philippe's great-grandmother Anna arrived so many centuries ago, Paris had been nothing more than the struggling central village of a swampy backwater, a handy port surrounded by millions of acres of forests filled with yokels and murderous pigs and an ancient crumbling church. By the time Philippe passed away in 1223, he had built Paris into a modern, vibrant city, central to the political framework of Europe. And at the heart of Paris, was a new cathedral, an awe-inspiring Gothic masterpiece drawing the power of both church and state to its front steps. 700 years later, a new generation of city planners installed a plaque in front of the doors to Notre Dame. The plaque marked the starting point for any measurements of distance within the borders of France, as they like to call it, Kilometre Zero. In other words, nearly a millennia after her completion, Notre-Dame Cathedral is still the center of France. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. I've gotta go now so I can lead my mom a few blocks down the street to the center of the center, the heart of Paris, Notre-Dame. Keep an eye on the show's Facebook page, where I'll be sharing some photos from our travels. When we're back home, I'll continue this series with the story of Philippe Auguste's grandson, Louis IX, Saint Louis, who would lead Paris through a golden century of learning, wealth, and innovation, right before disaster struck. Notre Dame, as always, would be at the heart of it all, providing inspiration, common ground, and eventually, comfort in a time of grief. As we'll discuss next time, Notre Dame has always been there for the city when the city needed her. And today, we are going to be there for her. Thank you for listening to this very special Parisian dispatch of the Land of Desire. And until next time, au revoir!